Talk Recorded live. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of trouble, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. Welcome all to another week of 42 Minutes, this, this one being episode 13. And again, uh, my usual co-host, Will, is out on sync assignments, and I'm joined by Alan Abadessa and a very special guest this week, which I will let Alan introduce. Oh, uh, thank you. It's good to be back with you, Doug. And uh, today we have with us Neil Kramer, who I'm just really honored to have with us. He was uh, kind of to contribute to the sync book and join us today. So, Neil, welcome to the call. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me along. Absolutely. Now, Doug, you started this off with a quote about death, and that's because this is the 13th episode and 13 being death in the tarot, correct? This is correct. Um, Yes, so the 13th episode, I think this means that we're talking about death this evening. And this is interesting that usually the show comes to you in the morning and this this episode is uh, coming to you at night. So, is is the death card? What does that mean? Is it a, is it a literal death or is it a transformation? And that's what the show is doing this week. Absolutely, and that's something uh, we had started to mention the movie Brazil uh, last week. It, it came up, and the the ending of the movie is something Doug and I have discussed as to what actually happens. And uh, wait, before I, we get into that, should we say, you know, did you, well, first, I just want to say how much I appreciated your piece in the sync book, Neil. I thought it was fabulous. You're welcome. Thank you. How how did you, Alan, as the editor of the book, how did you, how did you get in touch with Neil? How did this happen? Uh, I first heard Neil on Red Ice, oh, I guess like two years ago, and then I followed some of his work and was just really impressed. And uh, I just sort of, I guess it was towards the end when we, you know, as I've mentioned a number of times, the sync book just sort of snowballed from a very innocent total idea of, hey, what if some of us all wrote 10 pages to uh, snowballing into a real something? And, uh, when we decided to expand the book and a little bit more towards the end, I, I just reached out to Neil and asked him if he would contribute one of his, uh, he writes wonderful essays on his website. That's neilkramer.com. And I asked him if he would be willing to contribute one of those essays to our book. And he said, yes. Right. Now, the reason I'm sorry, the reason I mentioned Brazil is because one of the first times I heard Neil speak was in a Red Ice episode where the sort of topic was the movie Brazil, or he used that as a launching point. And I thought maybe Neil would want to speak to that uh, a little bit of how, and a few things, you know, essentially maybe we can get to the ending of the story of do we escape what is quote-unquote escape, death, 
of death in the tarot also being change, what is the true transformative process, but also maybe a little bit of uh, where I'd really like you to start. I think many in synchronicity who have come to really study synchronicity got into it and through what Neil calls a dark unveiling. And I was wondering if, Neil, if you would introduce that aspect a little bit to start us off. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the dark unveiling, uh, I presented various models uh, and ways of thinking about the world over the past you know, five, six, seven years. And one of the um, stages in one's personal awakening process, if I can use that rather grand word or expanding consciousness or whatever you want to call it, one of those stages is undoubtedly an unveiling stage where as you begin to realize that there is more to life than the, the mainstream consensus reality tunnel suggests there is, uh, one of the most intriguing aspects of that initially is the dark unveiling. That is the sort of shadow side, which is to some degree, alchemically speaking, a reflection of what's inside us. But it means conspiracy to most people. Um, but as you begin to push through that, you realize that it is um, a very archetypal shadow, as, as Jung might uh, describe it, in that it's everything that is um, unconscious in the world. So that does mean all the kind of psyops and uh, destructive events and um, you know unpleasantness around the world. And people get drawn into looking at the sort of David Icke and Alex Jones territory and realize that a lot of this stuff is real. It's not really open to sort of debate and whether it's actual or not anymore. I think with any sort of degree of personal study, which, you know, there's quite a lot of that required, you soon come to the conclusion that there is a sort of cabal of people going around trying to steer events. And what I have um, found is that that group of people, rather than it just being like the Illuminati or the New World Order or some kind of slightly superficial layer is, is really what I would describe as the empire, which is one empire, which is unceasing really since about 8,000 years ago at, at minimum. And so there's always been the empire and it was Egyptian and Roman and Mongol and British and American and it's all the same thing. And when you look at the dark unveiling of life, whatever level you go to and however deeply you want to penetrate that, what you're really doing is you are investigating the um, sort of forensic trail of the empire and how it's moved through human society over the millennia. And you come to a point where you realize that not only is it, is it actual and it has veracity, as I say, but it's also something that um, is very old. And I think a lot of pure conspiracy researchers um, kind of neglect to go into that in any great detail. And a few people may say, oh yeah, there's Sumerian aspects and you know, uh, off-world aspects and so on, but they don't really go into it. And I think that even looking at the modern sort of mediaplex, which I know is quite a heavy feature of synchromistic study, if you like, you can start to see the sort of little tentacles of the empire. And it's, it is very fascinating, but the real juice of it, the real value of it, is that there comes a point where you realize that it's actually an aspect of yourself and it's actually a reflection of 
of consciousness and that leads to a rather classical realization which is that as in alchemy with uh, Hermes Trismegistus there's no real difference between the outside and the inside so not just as above so below but as within so without so the wise student realizes that those dark unveilings really are a reflection of what's inside and that's the value of it and the transformative aspect is once you realize that you don't get hung up in this kind of negative vortex where you just think well all is lost and the empire's kind of supremely powerful and there's very little we can do and we're all kind of in a bit of a up the creek without a paddle situation it's not like that it's, it's, a, it's a very classical kind of Hindu realization really so that's what that is and it can take many forms and many aspects very practical geopolitical study and very um, esoteric study uh, in terms of secret societies and non-human intelligence and so on and so forth so those different layers of the shadow um, again if one can keep still and focused and balanced and strong going through that it does lead to a good place and it, as I say it's, it's a very archetypal journey really it's, the, it's the, the fool's journey in tarot if you want to put it that way and that you start from that point of ignorance and you start to realize that everything isn't isn't as we thought it was and initially that feels bad <laughs> but after a little while after a little study and a little kind of soul searching you start to um get the attainment the conscious attainment that that is actually part of your own journey it's not just stuff out there on the platform of the world that's happening and you're looking at it it's actually part of you I think that's that's the spiritual um, value to it. Wonderful. So then, does the individual transform the empire by transforming themselves, or does is that irrelevant? You know, the empire is always going to be the empire, and the individual needs to go on their journey and break through. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, like, that's, the, that's the key question, isn't it? I think that brings one to the very deep and important topic of free will. And essentially, without free will, you are at the mercy of the empire. And everything that you do, every time you vote and you know fill out a form for the IRS or go and get your driving license or whatever, you're playing the empire's game, really. And if you're hoping that Ron Paul is going to make everything better or there's going to be some sort of Marxist revolution or something, you're still playing the empire's game and it looks rather you know, difficult. So the transformative element of that is in realizing from a very high level that the empire um, serves a kind of purpose of um, what you might call as a negative attractor. So it pushes out polarity of conflict to a point where it creates change it accelerates change so um, in, in Hindu terms you know many people be familiar with the yuga cycles where you're at a point where there's more negative polarity than there is positive so from a human face on the map type perspective that looks a bit bleak and you might think well it it might be nice to live in a time where it's very positive, you know, the golden age or whatever. 
but actually it's where that uh, Kali Yuga cycle completes where you reach optimum negative polarity that you also reach optimal uh, potential for change so really it's kind of like a game in that even the Empire is playing that game as well and strictly speaking there are no good guys and bad guys but again that's an, a transpersonal view and you know if you get in a boot in your face and you, your teeth knocked out it, you, you do well to keep that view in mind of course <laughs> so if you're right up against the edges and you feel that abrasion then you quickly forget that but if you can create a space for contemplation and you can zoom out from your own personal affairs for a moment then you begin to see that this uh, empire, the only thing that it, that's unusual about it is that it's kind of plugged in to Maya, the illusion of, of form. And what was designed as a teaching mechanism, i.e. to penetrate the illusion of form, has been sort of hijacked a little bit. And that Maya uh, construct, which I call the distortion, has become very inorganic so a, a few thousand years ago I think it was very natural and now it isn't it's very synthetic and it's, it's very much um, conditioned and programmed and constructed and so on and yet again although that seems a little bit kind of cynical point of view it actually has the overall effect of increasing one's potential for realization and attainment and growth and awakening and enlightening and illumination and all that stuff so you know it's kind of like um, the Empire in uh, the Star Wars movies you know when it gets really big and really mighty and really powerful and all looks lost suddenly there is the greatest potential for the new paradigm to break through and that cycle is an old one and it happens every 25,000 years we could say um, and I think we're coming to that point again where new paradigms are beginning to surface and they're, they're, they're there now it's not some magic switch that gets thrown they are there now but you can't see it when you've, you're completely immersed in the distortion you have to get out into organic true reality and that is a process of conscious purification which is what my work is about really and you know, I have a book coming out in the spring and that's what that is about to say let's understand what the distortion is let's understand the systems of control now get that out of the way and then we can realize that that is a kind of springboard for something pretty exciting actually so I have a very optimistic view of it that sounded like a small dinosaur in the background then what was that <laughs> it's cute velociraptor yeah <laughs> One of the things we talked about last week is the idea of, so when, when you talk about things like this, you end up <clears throat> abstracting things, and then this leads to the idea of like a sync rapture, where when you do transform, you know, where do you find yourself at the end of that? Is it you're just pure light floating around in, in you know, a blissful tree, or is it, you know, how do you, how do you view that? Do you, do you view it that more sounds, That sounds pretty good to me, actually. Yeah, I'd go with that. No, um, <laughs> I, I think... I mean, are we very food and, you know, scratching around in the dirt at the end of this? Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. I think that's a very sort of binary way of looking at it, that you're, you're either in the 3D platform or you're off it. 
and uh, that uh, leads into the, the notion of um, how the architecture of this place hangs together. And for me, um, the way I consider that, the way I view that, is to say that there are different densities of being, rather than saying dimensions, which can lead us into thinking very spatially. Um, we could say that there are different densities of being. So let us say, for example, that a gas or a liquid is a, a first density consciousness. And you know, uh, a wolf or an eagle is a second density consciousness, and a, a human being is a third density consciousness. And I, I propose a model where there are seven levels of this, and it could be nine or 11 or 13, but there, it's kind of like chakras or whatever. You can collapse it down into seven key areas. And I think the game, really, of consciousness is to move from the first density to the seventh density and go through that um, growth process. And all the time, it's a process of distillation and refinement and purification. And you can't really proceed until you've learned the lessons that, are, that have dominion in your density. So what transition means, which is um, obviously represented by 2012 in many people's minds, that transition reflects a movement of consciousness where there is, for the first time in a long time, a number of conscious beings who are homo sapien, who are beginning to shift to fourth density consciousness. So it's, it's a gear shift, it's a movement. It's not an absolute way you just blip into being a light being. You move to a different stage of being, a different kind of ultra-terrestrial existence which again is totally organic, totally natural, happens all over the universe. But in our little quadrant here, it's not happened before. It's novel. And I think that's what the change is because the old paradigms that are anchored into third density being can't really move forward with that because it's very much about uh, possession and it's very much about form. And if you're into those two things, although that might have been appropriate at one time, it's starting to become not appropriate anymore. So the whole uh, solar system presents itself as an engine for us to um, get maximum sort of slingshot on that movement. And you can see it everywhere. And of course, I don't need to tell you guys that particularly in the media, you can see that coherence, that super coherence, as um, Irvin Laszlo calls it, formed in where there's any sort of complexity. So you can see it in tea leaves in a cup, or you can see it in text in a movie, or you can see it in cloud formations. The Druids used to have this um, cloud uh, divination called Neladrach, which was using the complex movement of clouds to determine what's going on around the planet. And any sufficiently complex system, even the lines on your hand, can be used to do that. And when a maximum point of um, acceleration is reached, the coherence becomes extremely tight. And you can start to see those synchronicities gather together. And I think that's what, for me, is, is fascinating about this synchronistic um, observation that we call synchromysticism, which is that it's becoming more and more self-evident. And the old kind of question of, well, you can see it in everything if you want to, that's the whole point. Yes, you can. <laughs> and that's, that's what's most fascinating about it, that rather than being in a 
a universe where one struggles to find meaning. It's quite the opposite. We're actually in one that is absolutely saturated in meaning. And all that we do is put our spotlight of consciousness on a particular trail of that and we describe or articulate a particular journey for that. Yeah, I've I've been sort of over the last year I've been referring to synchro mysticism as fractal cartography, sort of mapping uh, yeah. out like the, the yeah. fret. Yeah, I mean it's you might you know, exactly as you said, you can focus in on any point and you're going to notice the same patterns and the same interconnectedness no matter what you choose to be your focal point. And yeah. and I think it, it just over and over again sort of reminds me and and reassures me that yes, this universe is completely filled with meaning at, at every angle. Even the things you thought were, were meaningless or trivial or or inane, even the trash, you know, it's like the the, the things, you know, uh you mentioned we started off with the dark unveiling, the pop culture in a lot of ways is very dark, but then we find that even within that, even within the machinations of this empire, we're finding those same that same evidence of this fractal holographic nature that we're all repeating or we're all echoing aspects of each other. Yeah, you you do. And and definitely the the dark aspect of the empire, again from a high perspective, um is a gift because it's really the universe saying, okay, guys, you're not choosing to look at the shadow inside yourself, so we'll do you a favor. We'll present it in the external circumstances of your world. Then you'll not be able to ignore it anymore. So the whole point of that cycle is that the longer we ignore the shadow and the longer we leave our sort of long overdue rewiring job, uh, you know, the longer we put that off, the harder and more dense that um, exhibits itself in the outside world. And so, you know, you look at the sort of GOP uh, political race with Romney and Perry and goodness knows who and all these people battling against each other. And it's totally absurd. And it's really kind of dispiriting if you were to believe for one moment that that was the best alternative to what politically is happening in America at the moment. And that's a gift because it says, well, this is how silly it gets when you ignore your own shadow work, when you ignore your own polarity. And, you know, the only thing that's a bit crap about humans is that there's been a tendency for the last few thousand years to not do the inner work. So more and more, I think the the, the smart person is, is beginning to realize that. And the more ridiculous and crazy and funny outside circumstances get, um, the more that gifts you the opportunity to say, okay, hang on a second. All right, I'm starting to see this now. This is about growth, isn't it? This is about presenting to you, mirroring to you something that you don't want to look at inside so it becomes externalized. It becomes uh, projected outwards. But really, that the source of that problem starts inside so you can't just fiddle about with the outside symptoms. You have to go to where that projection emanates from, and that's from us, no one else from us. And that's the alchemical aspect of this, because particularly the sort of medieval alchemists and the uh, early Victorian alchemists in Europe, they knew this stuff inside out. This stuff was passed down for 
generations and <clears throat> much of it needed to be hidden because the Christian and even the Buddhist um, religious march in the East and West crushed that knowledge. They didn't want that knowledge in the mainstream and so it became hidden in what we now call secret societies. Um, and th those um, kind of repositories of knowledge are slowly um, leaking out into the mainstream and the, the old laws of this has got to remain absolutely secret and absolutely watertight are changing now because the, the rules of the game are changing. Nobody's going to get necessarily the head lopped off anymore because certainly in the West the religious dominion is, is much less and it's appropriate for that information, for that sacred knowledge to actually come out now but it, it comes out in a way that is most relevant and most prescient for the, the times. And so, of course, we find it coming through technology and through the media and through art and through music. And that's, again, that's the value of the, the sort of pioneering synchromystical study in that that is what is being tracked by, in this particular case, you know, 26 guys who you've gathered together. And, of course, <laughs> a, lot, a lot more people are doing it. But if you want a real, you know, 101 head start crash course in brain surgery, this is it. That's where you find out how it works. And the beauty of it is, and again, you, you guys will know this, is that as soon as you, you click with how it works, you can go out and do it on day one in your own life and track that movement of consciousness and that growth accelerator. How do you, where do you think this kind of fall? Where's the separation? Why did why did that happen? Do you think that is it just the normal progression of the yugas that we became more and more isolated from our spiritual core? That the you know the uh, the uh, reluctance to do the shadow work that you said. Yeah, good question. That's that's important. Um, I think there's a personal answer, uh, and there's also a non-personal answer. The personal answer is that when we show up on this planet in the 20th century or the 21st century for newcomers, uh, you show up in a place where there are no tools and there's no education and there's no awareness whatsoever of what the inner work is and what its value is and why indeed we should do it. So if you find yourself being born in Europe or America in particular, there's no productive Protestant purpose at all for doing the inner work. All that matters is that you resource yourself well, and that's the game in the mainstream construct. Resource yourself well, have nice things. That's the game. Right. And so at some point, you have to step back from that, even from your own friends and family and, and you know colleagues and so on, who are all doing that, and say, hang on a second, that there's something wrong with that. That's I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing here. So at the personal level, you face the immediate challenge that you don't have any support or knowledge of that whatsoever. And even the guys that you know, people like ourselves speak to all the time, at some point they've all had to go through that realization and think there's, there's something else going on, there's something not right. You know, It's a bit of a sort of Thomas Anderson moment where you realize there's something wrong, but you're not sure what it is at first. And then you start to study, and then you start to explore, and so on. So the personal answer is that's why, because society is constructed in a way that that 
information <clears throat> and that path is kept from us. <coughs> um, the kind of non-personal answer, to some extent you have to look at the old information and the old records for that if you want to do it in this current state of consciousness. We'll perhaps talk about other ways of doing that later, but if you want to do it in a normal, waking, ordinary state of consciousness, you look to see people who have asked these questions a long time ago and what they said. And for me, one of the um, primary uh, kind of elegant and most well-articulated uh, cosmologies comes from the kind of early stroke pre-Christian Gnostic scholars and sages, who um, many of whom wrote that this uh, universe was created really in error and it was created outside of a male-female point of balance and the, the female aspect of the divine kind of separated out, created something that created a being called the Demiurge for those who don't know and this god then went about quite innocently in a way and created a universe the one that we live in and although it follows the blueprint of the divine universe, the perfect universe, there's a fundamental error in it in that it doesn't have the core harmony. And so our experience of that is what we call entropy and that everything tends towards an ending. And that isn't the divine blueprint. That's what happens when it's created outside of balance. So the primary fall in Gnostic mythology, and mythology we must bring to mind doesn't necessarily mean fiction at all, it means it's a model, it's a way of thinking about the world that may very well be very literal, and that's for the individual to decide, but that model is very useful because it shows us that when the Demiurge created, he did it to the blueprint, but he didn't have the male-female harmony, and so we get created from a world that was from the dark feminine shadow, which um, the ironic result of is that we end up with the dark masculine shadow. And we live in a world run by uh, disturbed men, basically. Yeah. And that, that, is one, uh, that is one description of tracing that route back. And in my uh, discussion of this in an essay uh, earlier this year, or maybe last year, I can't remember, it won't be this year, it was 2010 or 11. Um, you could kind of think of it in that the, the creator, if you want to think of it in that way, or the divine source, or um, the underlying architecture, the physics, whatever, knew that this kind of problem had occurred and thought, instead of like reformatting the hard drive and just thinking, oh, well, there was just a fuck up there, so let's get rid of it, he kind of thought, hmm, that's interesting, that's really curious what's happened over there. So what I'll do is I'll send in um, sentient beings who have the perfect algorithm, the perfect male-female, innocent, uh, empowered unity of free will into that corrupted system and see if they can heal it from the inside out. So in Gnostic uh, tracts and in Gnostic teachings, they call them the, the beautiful or the pure innocent spirits which just means that there are some beings on earth who came in pure, quite a lot of them, walking around the place, 
who don't necessarily succumb to the conditioning quite as heavily as everyone else do, as everyone else does. And so they spread this kind of awareness. And you could say, well, maybe we know a lot of those people. Maybe it's a lot more common and a lot more normal than we think. And that spreading of illumination, again, is part of a natural process. And as to how what that percentage looks like out of 7 billion is, is anybody's guess. Well, certainly for me, you know, it's like an innate impulse. And I think it is in a lot of people I, I meet to get to the truth of things and wondering why the place doesn't run so well. Again, if you go to these Nag Hammadi texts and go through them, although you have to kind of filter a lot of this Christian um, terminology out a little bit, um, when you get to the underlying message of it and you start to realize what is being said, then this issue that we face now, you know, in 2012, is a very old one. And it's happened quite a few times. And it's just come into a, a kind of, as Terence McKenna would call it, a concrescence, where a lot of the energies are coming together and are accelerating or speeding up. The old stuff is kind of like beginning to fracture a little bit. But there's some amazing new stuff occurring. And certainly last year, on my travels and studies and so on, particularly in meeting people face-to-face, -face, of course, I've never met so many conscious, uh, optimistic, powerful people ever. And that is very, very encouraging to me. And so that's why I think that it is a game at the top level. And it is an experiment to see if something that has got a problem can be fixed from a place of um, amnesia, basically. Because, of course, when we come in, we don't really know anything. We just have to guess everything and make a, you know, a, a, a sort of best guess with integrity and honor and truth and intelligence as best we can. And that's, that's the game, to see if that can uh, bring through the harmony that wasn't there in the first place. So that is one is one um, cosmology, and there are many, but that's one that I quite like and I think has a lot to teach us, even if it's um, not the only one. It's, I'm not proposing that as the answer, but it's certainly something that is worthy of study and gives a lot of um, interesting avenues for exploration. Now, I'm curious. In this model of the, um, I'm familiar with the idea of the demiurge and the sort of um, faulty universe, if you will, or the flawed universe. Now, a lot of what SYNC shows, for, for certain people, SYNC shows that it is a perfect universe, that if you can show this sort of divine order and everything, then we already are in the perfect universe and that it's not flawed. It's, it's the, some, that's something that a lot of people, excuse me, a conclusion that a lot of people come to. Now, I wonder if, again, as it's that sort of as above, so below, as within, so without, as you start doing that inner work, is that sort of um, view of the outside world, are we repairing it? Are we, while we're doing the inner work, are we also almost like Terry Gilliam's time bandits? You know, are we repairing the sort of flaws in the grand architect's plans by I mean, just the, the, the universe? Yeah, the architect's plan is perfect, if we can use that word. That's the way I feel. The design is supreme, and, it, and again, as you say, you don't have to look very far into the sort of synchro-mystical nature of this thing to, to determine that. And like I say in my little piece in your book, you know, just look into 
head of a sunflower and you start to realize there's something pretty amazing occurring. And it, as you say, fractally at every level that occurs with humans, with plants, with nature, with design, with art, with everything, that the, the design itself is good. The problem was the execution of that design, if you like, the, the person who actually constructed it did it from a place of ego, did it from a place of thinking, I'm the big man and this is my universe. And so whenever that happens, as, it, as indeed in our own personal lives, it all, everything tends towards its own end, entropy, the third law of thermodynamics or whatever. And we accept that as well, that's just the way it is. And it, and it is to some extent, it's hard to argue that. I'm, you know, many physicists I'm sure could line up and pretty much persuade anybody that that's the way it kind of functions. But the point is, as you say, that as you start to see that and you bring your own harmony into it, you can sort of revivify that design and say, okay, the design is good, but as conscious co-creators, as aspects of the divine, which I firmly know that we are, you have the ability to bring that harmony back to any point in the design that you make contact with, whether in abstract thinking, whether emotionally, whether physically, whether in your food, whether in your journeys, whether in your music, everything you do, every time you contact the design, you have the capacity to reharmonize it and to bring it back into a state of natural coherence that potentially wasn't there in the first place. So, yes, you can see the patterns, but the execution of those patterns and the articulation of them only really works from a position of harmony. So that's why it's kind of like always a good result in the end because you can't really um, mess that pattern up because it just fizzles out if it's done from a place of um, decoherence. If it's done from a place of harmony, it tends towards self-sustaining um, practice, just like in you know permaculture or something. You know, it's, it tends to find its own equilibrium and that's what this is about it's about reintegrating opposites bringing light and shadow together and understanding that the uh, the cracks in the world and the weird stuff in the world you know that we don't like is fixable but no one else is going to come along and do it the whole point is that we do it in ourselves and the universe learns from us just as much as we learn from it beautifully said we only have a few minutes left in the live broadcast um would you like uh, if you're willing to follow us over into the uh, after show uh, glad we do that but maybe you want to address your upcoming book uh, in the last few minutes here sure thank you yeah um i over 2011 the second half of 2011 i was pretty solidly writing and i've uh, finished my book which is called the unfoldment and it will be released in spring and there will be obviously updates on the website and stuff and the publishers will put their own materials out and I'll be talking about that and going to different events and so on. But yeah, the, the book really is a sort of synthesis of a lot of the things I talk about and my experiment with the book is to try and um, bring that information to people who know nothing about any of this. So um, although old hands and wise old wizards wandering about the planet might pick it up and find it useful, hopefully, certainly my satisfaction and my fulfillment, is to, that's easy to do that, 
but what's really a, an exciting challenge is to get you know the woman you stood next to in the, uh, the dentist's waiting room to pick it up and have a look at it and actually take something valuable away from it. So it is pretty comprehensive, um, but it's also very approachable as well. So that's been my intention with this to try and you know strike a chord with people who know that things are changing and maybe feel a bit uncertain about that and really put empowerment into people's hands. So it's, it is a very transformative book, but it's about power as well. And, you know, claiming that back for ourselves, really, rather than imagining that it's something that is bestowed on upon us or is something that exists outside of us. You know, it's, it's claiming that within ourselves. So that's, that's what it's about. When the going gets weird, the weird go pro, huh? <laughs> Here's uh, um, ending. Well, a quote from your piece in the Think Book. Uh, towards the end, you, you say, "Our life is a journey. We illustrate it with our unique and miraculous stories." And we were talking about the death card at the beginning. And uh, this past Christmas, I was given a new set of uh, tarot cards. It's it's called the Wildwood, and instead of a medieval or Egyptian symbol set, they use like a pagan or Celtic symbol set. And for the death card, it's called the journey. And I just thought that was... Nice. Yeah, I like it. Very, very appropriate. Yeah. So how much time we got? We got a couple minutes to wrap it up. Okay, so can I I bring this up? Um, At the end of Brazil, um, you know, is he... Uh, how do we put it, you know, is he getting out of the sort of trap of, you know, is he sort of uh, come through the dark unveiling and he's gone inside to do the interior work? Or is he, uh, as you know, there's so much out there, it's the idea of, you know, this is mind control and you're you're creating, you know, a sort of MK ultra like uh, altar or, or, or prison in your own mind. What do you have? Hope for Sam Lowry at the end of Brazil. Where do you where do you stand on him? Yeah, I do. I do have hope for him. I think it's I think it's reality tunnels. I think from the reality tunnel of Brazil, which is essentially modern day Britain, come to life in the real world. Uh, that is the reality tunnel, and he's fucked basically. Um, from a different reality tunnel, he's completely um, understood what's going on around him, and you know the character played by De Niro, is his own hero, and it's only where he loses faith that that dissipates, really. And I think he starts to realize through love, um, to, to, to give it a nice ending, that there's another way of doing it. So I think the parallel uh, reality tunnels them both as relative and as, um, as, as real as each other. So it depends through which lens you're looking at, and certainly Gilliam likes to always switch that about. So you're left with that question mark, but I think it's very... It's very conscious question mark. I think he's saying, that's up to you what you want to do, you know? So both that's those up. realities split off. And Okay. And that's up up to you what to do. Yeah, they both.